Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So our faithful audio engineer, Matthew Kahn, is here. And Matt, tell us what we're drinking on the podcast today. We are drinking California Pinot Noir out of paper cups. Oh. Fancy. And what is that called when you drink California Pinot Noir out of a paper cup? It's called a transcontinental because it's what James Comey drank on his flight back from Los Angeles the day he was fired as FBI director. Wow. So he was drinking. Well, he actually wasn't drinking on the job, was he? No, he was drinking very much off the job, but on the plane. (laughs) I feel like under the circumstances, that was probably appropriate for him. And Josh Campbell, who was his special assistant, has put put on Twitter a picture of Comey sitting in like the jump seat up front with the pilots with his paper cup drinking, watching the final descent. Nice. The, the final descent in Norway is the final, so final descent. The, the transcontinental is what you drink when it's all going down. Right. If you got to go, you go down with Pinot Noir in a paper cup. Well, thank you, Matthew, for this lovely addition to our day drinking podcast. Taking a break from scotch this week. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Drinking on the Job edition. I'm Shane Harris, enophilic reporter. Do you know what an enophile is? I'm very fancy. Man, are you going to send me to a dictionary? Can't you just say hard drinking reporter? Hard drinking of wine. You have an enophile is one who appreciates wine, and I do, in paper cups or glass. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to point out about these paper cups. They're Brookings paper cups, and... The wine, which is chilled nicely, is making a liar out of the cups because the cups say caution contents hot and the wine is not hot. I, You know, I think the paper adds a little je ne sais quoi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it's it. The, it's the smell coming off of it. I think, <laughs> it, I think our podcast should say caution contents hot. Should, should, we, <laughs> should we send a bottle of wine and some paper cups to Dr. Ronnie Jackson? You know, we should. Because he's been drinking Because he also job. likes to drink. My favorite, my favorite line of the week was in the New York Times report <clears throat> on the allegations against uh, the VA secretary nominee that he drank too much on the job. Too much. <laughs> too a little much. bit would have been all right. A little it's bit. Too much. What There's an appropriate the, level for the What is the presidency. right amount for President Trump's lawyer? For this uh, president for or president any president? Trump's law- <laughs> <laughs> They're all lawyers. Yeah, different <laughs> question. <laughs> for President Trump's doctor. President Trump's lawyers get to free-based heroin <laughs> <laughs> By the way, speaking of which, did you see the latest tweet about Ty Cobb in an airport? Yes. Um, So for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, there's a wonderful picture of Ty Cobb and his mustache. Double fisting cell phones. Double fisting Mm -hmm. cell phones and talking, according to the tweet, into them loudly about how he and Rudy Giuliani and uh, Jay Sekulow all need to be on the same page and the tweeter notes that he wasn't even trying to keep his voice down. The important thing is just to never, ever learn your lesson. That's the yeah. only way to go through life. <laughs> to and, go through life. And to keep drinking Pinot Noir out of paper cups. <laughs> exactly. He, he was going to get on a plane. So for all we knew, he was going to have a transcontinental. For all we knew, he was drunk already. <laughs> he needs a big cup for the mustache. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> his mustache. Oh, Him and John Bolton's mustache, they hang out. Uh, This week on the podcast, Gina Haspel faces an uphill climb to become the next CIA director. She should start drinking on the job now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She definitely deserves it. Uh, Former FBI number two, Andrew McCabe, may face criminal charges. He really needs to be drinking. I mean, he's off the job, but he should. Yeah, probably drinking heavily right now. Uh, And the Democratic National Committee files suit over the theft of its emails. What are they drinking? Yeah, a lot. There's a lot of drinking there. Let's start with Lucifer you know. 2. Lucifer, <laughs> Guccifer, Lucifer 2. Lucifer 2. They said Lucifer 2. Christ, is there another See, one he's I missed? drinking so much he can't even hear the difference between an L and a two. Go home, Shane, you're drunk. Hey, are you a doctor? <laughs> no. 
How do you know him? You're not a doctor. I'm just imagining him. What do you mean too much? Do you want to be? Do you have a medical degree, Tamara? No, you don't. I know how much he's too much. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm in charge of the podcast. Oh, no. Oh, I forgot to say that all my friends are here, by the way. Okay. Whatever, no one Susan, cares. Ben, and Tammy were all here in the Jungle Bar. Let's talk about Gina Haspel. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so uh, Gina Haspel uh, is set for have a confirmation hearing on May 9th. Um, I'm sure there won't be any fireworks at all for that one. That'll be a real snooze fest. Uh, there were dueling letters going back and forth between the CIA and the Senate today. Some Democratic senators who want more information released uh, a both about her bio, uh, like naming which country she actually served in, uh, which has been something that, from my perspective, the CIA frustratingly has been unable slash unwilling to do. But um, we know what basketball team she roots for. She, yeah. And her office decor. Exactly. Right? And she likes Johnny Cash. So, yeah. What That's, else do you need to know before yeah. you vote on a CIA director? Yeah. Uh, well, some senators would like to know uh, exactly what role she played in interrogating people in Thailand. Uh, and and, the, and more of the about the the depth and the specifics around her role there. So essentially, the CIA is saying to senators, "We'll try to declassify more information, but we're going to put it in a skiff. You'll have to come look at it. There won't be a public release of a lot more information about her." So, Susan, let me ask you this question just to, to start with. You know, the position of CIA director is a public position. It is not an undercover position. That said, you know, Gina Haspel has spent, I think, 33 of her 34 years in the CIA officially undercover. Uh, that is to say, her name not known publicly, her identity not revealed until she became the deputy director recently at the agency. So is it reasonable for senators to be demanding that more information be made public about her, including some pretty basic information that apparently we're not going to get, at least not easily, through official channels? Or should we expect that somebody who has spent her life in the shadows, as it were, um, that the CIA is just simply not going to be able to reveal that much because of all kinds of other equities and interests that are at stake, and we just have to essentially, uh, you know, cut her some slack in that regard? Yeah, so I think that, you know, it, look, it, it shouldn't be surprising that the CIA is trying to protect sort of classified material and, and sources and methods protection. The problem is, is that this is playing out against sort of the background of something else that's going on. And that's that the CIA institutionally is engaged in a open PR campaign supporting the nomination of Gina Haspel. And that's... You know, that is very unusual. We're talking like tweets that go out, right, you know, touting her career. And so the problem is, is that then whenever they push back on uh, on requests from Congress, that raises the specter that what they're doing is declassifying information that is favorable to her and maintaining and keeping classified information that is unfavorable to her because they are trying to increase the odds of her actually being confirmed. And so that's a really good example of why playing the PR game and sort of attempting to pick your own director is a really bad idea because then it raises credibility questions whenever the institution is is interacting with Congress on these requests. Um, You know, so it's not surprising that Congress is is sort of is upset. Um, She's gotten a little bit of a benefit from a misstep that ProPublica made. Um, ProPublica? What's what's our our standard uh, pronunciation there? And that's that they had originally reported that she had uh, been the chief of a black site in Thailand, um, you know, for a particular period of time, uh, and had attributed the torture of a detainee that had occurred there to her. Um, It later turns out that they'd gotten the dates of her service wrong. Well, and that this person had gleefully engaged in torture was the allegation. Right. And and the the report about the station chief that had sort of been a cheerleader was describing another individual, right? right? So it it really is a a significant But Gina Haspel did come in for the second person who was waterboarded. Exactly. So sort of there was all this controversy about her having been involved in torture then there's there's the retraction oh no no she wasn't involved in this in and that so one that story sort of goes away but then she was there when al-nashiri was there and so there is still questions about her participation but that sort of that kind of went away from the conversation and so i do think that one of the things you know congress is trying to get a hold of at this point are are documents that are going to are going to support or explain her role in that separate episode mm. you know that is really really important information to know whenever you're just 
discussing the suitability of someone to be the director of the CIA. So I I think that's a fair point on the merits of this individual and her nomination to high office. But I think, as you said, there are some broader arguments that are getting fought out over this nomination, one of which is one that we've talked about before, which is the role of the intelligence committees on the Hill as oversight committees and how well can they be trusted and does that process of kind of a cooperative back and forth between the intelligence community and the intelligence committees actually work. Um, because what's going on here is members of Congress saying, no, it's not just the intelligence committee members that need access to some of this material. All members should have access because they all have to vote. And the CIA is saying, you know, can't you people on the Hill just work with one another and trust your intelligence committee members? And I think based on all the conversations we've had on the podcast about that, the answer is no, they don't trust the intelligence committee members. So that's that's one problem. And then the other problem is that it seems like regardless of what Gina Haspel's particular actual involvement was in these very, very controversial interrogation programs, um, there are those who see a political advantage in hanging that issue, that torture issue, around her neck and around the neck of the Trump administration. And so no matter what facts get released or never get released, that's still going to be the argument. That that argument's not going to change. And so it's it, it kind of feels to me like a whole lot of sound and fury signifying nothing in terms of how this debate is actually going to play out. Ben. So I think there are a few distinct threads here that is worth that are worth disaggregating from one another. So one is the question of whether uh, a the CIA, as a condition of the consideration of a nominee under circumstances like this, should have to release a whole lot of information about the person's prior career. Um, and the answer to that question has to be no, uh, not merely because, um, uh, pr principally because uh, somebody who has a 30-year career at the CIA uh, in operational context still has sources that, you know, if, if you reveal a whole lot of information about what she's done over the years, you're actually going to end up outing people in fashions that can really endanger them. And, and there's and just, just to be clear, just to interject one point, one thing I've learned in my own reporting, we don't know a lot of details, but it is fair to say she had a deeply operational yeah. career in the field. Th this is, a, this this is somebody is, who really did, I mean, some stuff that, you know, kind of out of movies. Th th this is an operational person. And, you know, and you simply, it's unthinkable that the CIA is going to, you know, first she served in Botswana and then she served here. And then she's, and, you know, the dates are these. And then everybody's going to go match up the dates with when things happen and people are going to get killed. And so I can promise you that's not going to happen. Uh, now, the second question, which is a harder question, is can you ask the Senate in a when there's a controversy about this person to confirm somebody without seeing that material? And I think the answer to that question is also probably no. Um, that is, um, if somebody is really controversial, number one, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to release a whole lot of information about her prior career, and you shouldn't. But that may mean that you can't actually sustain the nomination. And by the way, I think that's probably okay. Um, you know, and by the way, probably should have given that some serious thought before you nominated her. What information would you have to release in order to, um, in, in order to make her a plausible nominee? And are you willing to release that information? The third question, and this is one that I, I actually kind of have strong feelings about, is should anybody who touched this program in any way uh, be untouchable for the rest of their careers. You mean the interrogation program? Yeah. And I, I understand that for a lot of Democrats and for some Republicans, that makes you retro radioactive and they're not going to touch anybody who had any hands on with respect to any aspect of this program. Uh, I don't share that view. Um, but I do think there is a wrinkle in this context that makes that question harder, which is that the person who's nominating her 
is somebody who uh, endorses, has publicly and repeatedly endorsed both waterboarding and torture more generally. And I think under those circumstances, when President Trump, having said and never retracted the things that he said about wanting to revive this program, um, promotes to run the CIA a woman who has some has had some involvement in a program that a lot of people think is toxic, I do think that heightens the question and puts it puts it at the front burner in a way that it might not otherwise be. And under other circumstances, I would say, hey, you know, this is like, we don't still need to be picking at the scab of this particular program. But in the context of President Trump's flirtations with revival of it, I don't really see how he could ask Dianne Feinstein not who has very strong feelings about the subject how do you ask her not to think about this in a in a in a very kind of active way and so basically oh and all of that is before you get to Susan's very correct point that the CIA has no business running a PR campaign on behalf of its nominee and so i think when you put it all together you get a situation where it's you, you know it's very difficult to imagine them releasing information of the sort that would facilitate the com- the con- a confirmation. It is also very difficult, and I can't really see a reason why people who are hostile to the program, skeptical of the program, would would move forward with it without a degree of reassurance that they're not likely to get. And I just don't understand why people didn't think about this before nominating her. I mean, one of the sort of the remarkable things is we talked about Pompeo's nomination last week. And I think the the more reasonable bet then would have been that Pompeo would not be confirmed and she would be confirmed. And then there's sort of a question of like, well, is Pompeo out of a job? In the span of literally one week, we've essentially reversed that. Now it looks overwhelmingly likely that Pompeo mm-hmm. is going to be confirmed and, and that, um, uh, you know, that she isn't going to be. Well, I actually, I, I wonder about that. I mean, in predictions, as we've always said, are kind of, you know, you know worth about as much as this paper cup. But I, I'm hot, beginning... Even if the contents are hot. <clears throat> if the contents are hot, hot or appropriate or cellar temperature. Um, I, I think, I mean, I, I've been kind of like trying to play the odds too, and it feels like, I still think that there's a better than even chance that she gets confirmed for largely for two reasons. And I'd be just curious if we're just going to wrap this segment up. But if anybody has a thought on this one, I I do think that there is, there's certainly a concern inside the CIA and probably it's shared by some lawmakers, probably particularly on the democratic side, that if Gina Haspel is not confirmed, that the administration will nominate someone far more um, unpalatable uh, to people. <laughs> <laughs> what did what, what you say? Schmam, schmam. Schmam, <laughs> Let's just say the administration might feel good about its chances of winning a special election for a Senate seat in Arkansas and might roll those dice, okay? So there's there's that there's that potential. The, um, but the other, and I, and, I, and I don't think it's insignificant, um, is I think it's, you know, regardless of what you think about the program, I mean, to Ben's point about the question of does this mean that anyone who is associated with this is essentially forever frozen or you can never, uh, you know, attain these kinds of levels, it will be read as a rebuke by the political class against the career class of the intelligence community. And I have no doubt will lead people in the future to wonder whether they should ever take part in any kind of program of any controversy, which... You know, I don't mean to sound like a defender of Gina Haspel because I'm not, but people have repeatedly made the point to me this was a program authorized by the president, reviewed by the Department of Justice, briefed to members of Congress. Uh, and at some point, I mean, you do have to expect that rank and file employees are going to undertake controversial operations with some assurance that what they're doing is legal. Uh, and you might even argue that you don't necessarily always want a culture in which they might just say, I refuse to do it because I disagree. Well, so first of all, I think there's a there's a huge difference between saying is participating in a program that you are advised is lawful, is that going to, are you going to end up in jail or subject yeah. to some sort of, you know, criminal And there was penalties. a special prosecutor assigned to this right. program. versus whether so that or not. that was not an insignificant 
possibility. Right. So I think that's one question. It's a very, very different question. Can you participate in a program like that and then go on to be confirmed as sort of as the director of the program? That's true. One's a political and one's a legal matter. Yeah. I, I also think this gets to Ben's point about the sort of the impossibility of examining the underlying record and the importance of it. So for the individuals who interacted with this program, there is a range and, and there is there are individuals who interacted with this program in a way that was cheerleaders and and really does sort of raise questions about about their fitness and judgment and 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 values and and how they would actually run this agency that would be really important and then there are other people that that interacted with this program in the course of their duties that um their their specific sort of involvement raises doesn't raise questions that would actually bear on is this somebody we want to be director of the CIA and so i think that because there's this the the involvement raises the question and then whenever you can't have uh, satisfactory information to sort of answer that inquiry it becomes really really difficult to then because you do have to make the binary choice is any involvement enough to sort of be be disqualifying i think the answer is not automatically but but maybe sort of through the yeah. loop or, or the cycle that we've seen because you know you could imagine information that you really wouldn't want the person to be confirmed and you can imagine information that you would be quite comfortable with them being confirmed I would just say I think the valence of the nomin the nominator matters. Barack Obama nominated John Brennan to run the CIA, and Brennan had quite extensive uh, high-level involvement in the program in the sense that he was part of the CIA's management team at the part time the 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 program was initiated, and he was in the room. Uh, now he claimed uh, and to have opposed it, but. Um, but you know he was he was there he was involved and it mattered that obama was nominating him and he was prepared to say this was torture we shouldn't be doing that and that's why john brennan was confirmed and the political valence of this is very different yeah, yeah well so it'll matter what gina haspel says when she gets to her hearing I think it's all going to come down to what Gene Aspel said. It's hard for me to remember in recent terms of a hearing that really did not feel pro forma. This feels like, you know, the uh, the Olympic figure skater going out who has to hit the triple axel or you're not getting the gold. Uh, I mean, yep. it's going to depend on what she says. No yeah. wine for you, Gina. Okay. Yeah, don't, don't drink, drink the night the before job. the hearing, girl. Don't do it. <laughs> all right. Um, let's talk about Andy McCabe. Um, the Inspector General, I think we mentioned on uh, a uh, previous episode, has – uh, found that uh, McCabe was lacking in candor and misleading, I guess is the fair way to say it, and multiple times, uh, and lied to investigators or his boss at the time, Jim Comey, uh, about interaction, well, about contacts with the media that he authorized FBI officials uh, to have. Uh, in full disclosure, said reporter was my colleague, Devlin Barrett, who now is at the Post, and this was at the Journal before. Um, and now this inspector general's report has been referred uh, to uh, um, prosecutors for possible criminal uh, action. Uh, Andy McCabe's lawyers are quick to point out that there's a low bar for IG referrals, which I'm sure doesn't necessarily make him feel all that much better. But Ben, sort of as a baseline question, how much trouble is Andy McCabe in here? And, and what also does this tell us what dimension or twist does this add uh, um, to the kind of ongoing narrative uh, uh, with uh, the FBI and its investigation, both of Trump and the Clintons and emails, et cetera, and sort of the uh, trust that we place in FBI leadership? Well, so first of all, I, you know, I, I don't know Andy McCabe and I, but I have admired very much uh, his performance in the period uh, after Comey was fired. And I think there are things that he did that the country owes him a debt of gratitude for, in particular, the way he handled the immediate aftermath of the firing. Um, and so I am very saddened by the whole thing. And I, I, I actually don't come to it from any, I, I, I wish I could be, you know, energetically defending Andy McCabe. Um, that said, the allegations in the uh, OIG report are upsetting and they are um, hard to read in a fashion that does not suggest misconduct. 
And that does not mean that um, every aspect of the process is makes sense now because I still don't understand how this process got accelerated in time to uh, fire him before he retired. And I still don't understand what role the president's uh, tirades against him may have had in, in creating political pressure on people. But I do think the conduct as described is very troubling. And um, Well, isn't it also not clear from what we know whether even if McCabe was dishonest, that that was motivated by any particular viewpoint or prejudice or political perspective? I mean, he, maybe you just screwed up. Well, right? so so that is an it is an important thing that one one narrative that this does not support is the president's right. The president wants to wants to describe this as you know the FBI leadership was corrupt. They were they were going after me and they were protecting Hillary. That's not what this story is about. Um, now, as to the criminal referral, I. That does not especially surprise me. I think once you, the the bar for a, a crimes report is quite low, and it doesn't seem to me to be all that surprising that once you've concluded that a senior level official has uh, has been under oath and lacked candor, that you would kick that to the department for consideration. I would be frankly stunned if the Justice Department pursued this as a criminal matter, but. But the referral itself strikes me as more a matter of routine than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I agree. There's basically no chance that this actually ends up being, you know, indicted or something. You know, a lot of people have have grabbed onto this notion of the lack of candor under oath because that sounds a lot like perjury. They are not the same thing. Lack of candor under oath. Lack of candor is an FBI essentially disciplinary standard, right? They they expect an exceedingly high level of candor. So it's not just an affirmative, knowing, willful lie, which is sort of the perjury standard. It's basically were you mis were you misleading? Were you less than completely forthcoming? Right? It's a much much broader thing. And so I think people are attempting to map sort of. The, the criminal aspect onto the findings in the IG report, which actually are saying very, very different things. Now, in terms of the substantive conduct, um, I, I agree that this is a report that um, uh, would support somebody being dismissed from the FBI. Uh, having read it, I, I'm less sort of, you know, this guy was lying all over the place. You know, there, there's an initial interview where he's being interviewed about one thing. They're walking out of the room and the agent asks him a question about this other story. And he sort of, he gives an answer. That's not totally clear to me, you know, that 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 seems like the kind of situation in which somebody might uh, either miss genuinely misspeak or have a, a sort of a small lapse in judgment. The second sort of conversation, I think, is more questionable. Uh, that's this is one with investigators that is under oath. You know, he corrects it within 48 hours. You know, he, he writes a letter and says, look, I want to make sure that there's not that, you know, nothing was misunderstood. Um, you know, so I, I agree it's not, um, you know. Uh, it's it's a it's a troubling record. It's not sort of shocking or or outrageous to me. You know that said, and Ben alluded to this. Um, none of it explains the timing of this, right? The notion that this IG report was completed in the week before he was about to be he was about to retire. You know, so that they made this recommendation for firing. That's just not the timeline of these reports. I mean, we're not talking about a little bit accelerated. We're talking about accelerated by a, by a factor of 10. And so even though the IG's office are career officials and they are making, you know, the recommendation of, of, of sort of career officials and now you have the IG report and you're saying, well, you know, yeah, this is conduct that you, that you could imagine. Uh, you know, it's reasonable to say we would recommend the firing of this individual. It still just does not account for what occurred, sort of this this rush to wrap up the investigation, this rush to do, can, uh, you can know, I to recommend his firing. Can I though? I mean, I understand what you're saying, but it strikes me that if you know somebody is retiring and there's a question on the table as to whether their conduct entitles them to retire with access to full benefits or whether their conduct... Entitles them to be fired. In other words, that would be the normal disciplinary action. Why wouldn't you speed up the investigation in order to have an opportunity to have an outcome that's 
consistent with departmental standards and procedures so that it doesn't look like, because the alternative is maybe you conclude the investigation after he retires and the rank and file think that you slow rolled it in order to let this guy get away with something. And that has deleterious effects on the institution. But if we've learned one thing, isn't isn't it that we shouldn't muck with the process at all? We well, should we do things exactly the way they're supposed to be done. Don't accept like like. Do we know that this investigation was harmed by being speedy? I mean, is there well, is are there some facts? I just think w- the departure from the process, the departure from the ordinary course of business, just raises such significant questions in my mind. To and- be clear, I don't think the IG investigation was accelerated. I think the IG investigation finished when it finished, probably in January, and that's why. Um, and then it was referred to FBI's Office of Professional Responsibility. I think that process seems to have been accelerated. And so I'm not sure. I I have real questions about what happened within FBI and DOJ. But I think it's probably after the IG report was done that that, that, that stuff happened. I mean, Shane, I'm interested in if you have a perspective on this. It, it, this really brings to mind sort of the story of General Cartwright, right? That it almost is a parallel. You're, you're authorized to leak. Uh, you're not leak. You're authorized to, to disclose something to the media. Then maybe you get a little bit out of line. Then you aren't totally candid about the investigation, and then it ends up being. I mean, am I no, am I missing the, something? Is it no, I think it has it has parallel echoes of that too. I mean, it's not it's not the leak that got him in trouble, right? It's not because I mean he did have the authority to authorize people to speak to reporters about. What was going on at the FBI? Now, you could question his motivation for doing so and well, whether and, that was and, noble or, or and not. Al- and also, there's the question of whether he had the authority to authorize the communication. But then there's the question of whether the substance of what he authorized to disclose was appropriate. And those are actually two separate questions. Right. But I mean, but to you, but you, I think, yes, using your point, there's there's an echo there at the same time. You know, the, the Bureau is very clear that candor is what they expect in these situations. Uh, and certainly Andy McCabe knew that. I mean, this was, I don't, I don't you know, he, I think he, he, my guess, I'm just completely just surmising this, but is that he thinks that his termination was wrong and not justified, but that if he really thinks about it, he can probably see where they're coming from in terms of the kind of the technical aspects of this and what he did that was, that was wrong and sanctionable. So, so now that he's filed suit, right, um, we're in a place where, uh, Trump was calling for him to be fired, right? He got f- fired, the department says, for cause. Um, he's now suing for wrongful dismissal. And basically, both sides are alleging uh, political bias or political shenanigans uh, that determine the outcome. And in a way, even if Trump's initial goal wasn't achieved, like that Sessions didn't push McCabe out and thereby have some impact on an investigation, the broader goal was achieved, which is that everybody's making political arguments and the waters are very muddy and everybody lines up according to their priors, right? I think that's right. I mean, it's become just a completely politicized story and it's and everyone's kind of plucking from it the facts were not facts that, that fit their narrative. Right. And you have now you have a lack of unity between McCabe and Comey, which has other implications to the extent right. McCabe was sort of a, a feature of his conversations with the president and also, you know, corroborates Comey's account. So it is. It, it muddies the waters in, in a really, really unfortunate way. Uh, well, let's talk about another lawsuit. And it's sort of kind of related in that it's stemming from that fateful uh, 2016 election. Uh, the DNC has filed suit uh, over the hacking and theft of emails from its servers, the defendants include uh, the, the Russian, Russian state, <clears throat> the Russian Federation, correct? Russian military intelligence, the Trump campaign, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, Roger Stone, George Papadopoulos, and Donald J. Trump, J. Trump Jr. Everybody, everybody, the whole it's a big cast, party. the whole cast of characters. Um, my first reaction to this, and anybody react to this if you think I'm off base or not, um, is that you could say this is a politically motivated lawsuit, although I don't know if people really do politi- – I mean, that might not be the, the, the real reason you'd want to do something like this, but that it really was potentially a discovery. And if you actually found that they had standing to sue any of these organizations, 
uh, and you wanted to get more information about what happened or what they might have, that could enter you into a discovery process. There's a similar, it reminded me of, and Ben, you'll remind me of the organization that's doing it, a similar suit against Roger Stone and some of the other co-defendants named here, which does seem kind of aimed at getting into a discovery phase to demand documents and to unearth information. Right. So that organization is Protect Democracy, which, full disclosure, also represents me on some FOIA matters. So I, uh, I, and and actually another matter as well. So I, I, uh, that said, uh, I think the DNC lawsuit is pretty badly pled, and the Protect Democracy lawsuit is much more interesting and better pled, and will is likely to have a better a, a better chance if it's fundamentally journalism by lawsuit, um, which is I think what this is ultimately about. It's ultimately about the discovery, as you say. And what you have to do in order to get that discovery is survive a motion to dismiss. And the problem with the DNC lawsuit is, first of all, that um, I, I, have a, I have a lot of questions about their RICO theory, um, which uh, are, I have not had time to research carefully, but I'm a little skeptical of, to be honest. But more importantly... Uh, the Russian state is almost certainly immune from this lawsuit for reasons of sovereign immunity. And so I think there's a um, – it strikes me as very unlikely uh, that subs uh, substantial pieces of this lawsuit, I believe, will not survive a motion to dismiss. And, uh, and I'm a little perplexed as to why they pled it the way they did. Um, that said, as listeners may remember from the time that uh, Protect Democracy filed their suit, I do think there, that civil litigation has a potentially substantial role to play here in loosing a lot of material and in, in, in forcing a bunch of people who have been really cagey about what their roles were to be under oath and to answer questions in, in public or semi-public forums. And you know, they're not going to sit down with you, Shane, and answer questions about everything they did. But in the context of, of, of such a lawsuit, they might have to. And, and so I, I, I do find this particular document, this particular suit to be a bit of a head scratcher. And, um, but I, also think we are likely to see some piece of litigation make it through dis make mm -hmm. it through into discovery and have a lot of impact there i i think it's i think your point about you know naming all of these uh individuals and entities whose roles have been ambiguous or um or hidden is an interesting point because and it strikes me that you know, for the DNC, setting aside like, you know, the profile and getting the media coverage and all that kind of stuff, the DNC has essentially taken incoming on this issue uh, for two years, even though they were, in fact, the victims. Um, and so the, uh, if nothing else, filing the suit is their opportunity to say, no, these people have to show up in court and in some manner answer for this or defend themselves or demonstrate that they didn't have a role or that, you know, that they shouldn't be included in this. And so it's a table turning exercise in a way, even if it doesn't get to discovery on on all of them or even on any of them. Um, and so I, I find it interesting just for that aspect alone. No, I I agree with that. I, I do think sort of strategically this is about, you know, putting forward your narrative and, and the full your full story about what happened. And, and certainly they're they're pretty wildly over inclusive. They sort of use every story, no matter how, you know, anonymously or single source, like it's all in there, this sort of grand conspiracy. But it, that is a powerful thing to put forward. The other thing is, you know, like if we look at the timeline of this other suit, uh, you know, that's happening in the District of D.C., um, that's filed in July 2017. They had a hearing on the motion to dismiss this week. That means there's live litigation 
um, they had a hearing that, you know, they're, they're not going to have another hearing on the motion to dismiss until May, right? So even if, you know, regardless of what happens, even at the motion to, to dismiss phase, we're talking about a long period of time in which this is going to be a, a live question, certainly through, I don't know, November of this year. And, and so I do think that it's not, uh, uh, there is a savviness to that. You know, on the question of sort of the merits of the lawsuit, I, I agree, you know, certainly some defendants are going to be thrown out, certainly some claims are going to be thrown out, and maybe quite a bit in either category. But I do think that there is a core in which they might have claims that are are as strong as what we see in, in the district of uh, in, in the in the case that's in DC. And that's that, you know, the DNC, uh, you know, who names the same individuals, right, Roger Stone, uh, you know, the Trump campaign, uh, you know, and also Wikipedia and, uh, you know, for, for sort of their role, um, alleges, you know, violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The DNC can actually prove millions of dollars of harm because they had to pay to have their systems repaired. And that is a concreteness of the injury, while the D.C. suit is on an invasion of privacy theory, which, you know, is a real demonstrable harm, but is only three individuals, is a little bit more attenuated. The DNC actually has the receipts. You did this to us, and this is what it costs, and we want to be made whole. So I don't know whether or not the outcome is they end up getting the right piece of discovery, um, you know, or or that the right parties, you know, once we do sort of like the Mad Libs matching of all of this, however it works out, I, I don't know that the right combination survives, but I, I do think that they, you know, that claim related to that harm, you know, does put them in a relatively powerful litigating position. And the other point, and this is the point that Tom Perez has made, they were about to, to run up against the statute of limitations. And so if they were going to sue, this was it. This was yeah. their last chance to do that. And so, you know, it, it does appear to have blindsided, you know, some some members of the, of the some Democrats in, in Congress that have sort of pushed back on this. But that's, that is a completely reasonable, uh, you know, reason to, to file a lawsuit because, this is your last chance to do it. All right. Before we go to object lessons, Ben, I think you you asked for some questions on Twitter. We're going to do one question a week, so go ahead. So this week's question from Twitter is for Shane from at Etaru. More of a request. In honor of Macron's speech, can Shane please talk in a French accent the whole episode through? That is very silly. Your, your, your request, first of all, it comes too late for me to do this. I don't <laughs> think I should have to sit here and humiliate myself. Why can't you just be cool and like drink a transcontinental? You, you know, if you drink more red wine, you can speak in a French accent. You know, Jim Comey, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you like this, but I don't know why you can't drink a nice burgundy. You guys you can't know, do this, maybe a nice has Sancerre. a beret on, and he's smoking a cigarette right now. It really <laughs> And he's got a, a like, beret. Emmanuel Macron, um, he could have this caution label put on him because the contents are hot. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and my French accent may not be that great, but, you know. I got two eyes. Shane's a fan. All right. Vive la France. And one other question. Uh, Will we ever see more than one episode per week? I can answer that with a simple two-letter word, no. Our livers can't take it. And it's, (laughs) it's... it's way hard enough to schedule all of us to be in the same room once a week. And now that, you get some of that MeUndies money, maybe. <laughs> that would be too much drinking on the job. Way too much <laughs> drinking. It's a little too much. Uh, all right, let's go on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first, actually, because I like my object lesson this week very much. Is it President Macron? <laughs> <laughs> you wish. I have some very nice photo. Um, so I, uh, I do have a nice photo. Uh, this is actually I went to an event that the Hayden Center did at the National Press Club where uh, Mike Hayden interviewed uh, the cast and crew of Homeland, which was Ooh. actually pretty cool. Um, I actually tweeted this with the caption, spy versus spies, in quotes. <laughs> People seem to like that. Um, and that was good. I'm pretty hard on Homeland. I think for the most part, it has kind of sucked as a show. I've never this seen season, it. This season is awesome. It's so good. <clears throat> um, basically, the reason I love this season, too, is like they pretty much took everything from reality and poured it into the show, and it still looks like it's not quite as real as real life. Wow. It's, it's you know, it, it's just, it's kind of amazing how they've kind of spun every single, it's like they took the DNC lawsuit and used it as the show <laughs> Bible. Can I uh, be honest? Like, 
real life is hard enough to watch. I I don't want to watch fictionalized that. Yeah, I, well, I actually was going to ask this question. But I just I didn't want to be you know annoying. I was with other people. Maybe there's a ton of fans in the audience, and people want to ask questions. But I, I wanted to say, look, you know, my friends and I are always joking. If you put the events from the news in a TV show or a book, right? Nobody would believe it. Hollywood would laugh you out of the room because it's too implausible. And yet your show almost doesn't seem realistic enough to see her. But it was pretty cool. Um, Mandy Patinkin, intense and very funny. And Claire Danes was lovely. He is amazing. Yeah, he's pretty great. And uh, no, it was super fun. That's probably on, there may be a video of it on their website if you want to check it out. But uh, Spy cool. versus Spies, it was good times. Uh, Susan, what's your it? So I have an object lesson. It is a, a long article from the New York Times Magazine that was posted yesterday, um, and it's called How Devin Nunes Turned the House Intelligence Committee Inside Out. Um, they didn't call it We Need to Talk About Devin. They I didn't. Know. They missed the... It's because we'd already taken it. Exactly. They didn't, you know, everybody would have already recognized it because, of course, all New York Times readers are also rational security listeners. So, of course. Uh, so we've Everyone. taken it first. You know, look, this isn't, um, it's not an article that, that breaks new news, right? Every sort of piece in here, I think, had but already been publicly disclosed. Um, it is a completely uh, sort of shocking narrative to, to see it all laid out in one place to sort of read the story about uh, what Devin Nunes has done over the past 18 months, um, the damage that this has inflicted to a really, really important congressional oversight. Um, it, it's a really, really damning indictment of, of him. Um, and at this point, it's a damning indictment of House leadership that that they would continue to have him sort of in this role, uh, you know, wreaking this kind of havoc. Um, and so I, I really, I think that whenever we, uh, you know, however this presidency ends, you know, wherever we go, there, there are things we are going to need to have to repair afterwards. And uh, intelligence community oversight is a is going to be one of the heaviest lifts is how do we repair uh, uh, the damage that has been done over the course of this year and I think sort of taking a moment to actually understand what has happened uh, sort of admits the the insanity of what's happened you know over the past 18 months or so um it is really worthwhile so I would commend this article to everyone and um we do need to talk about Devin oh God. All right. Word. Tomorrow with your object. Um, so my object is a brand new book by uh, my uh, and Ben's Brookings colleague, Bill Galston. And Susan's. And Susan's, yes. And one-time podcast guest. Yeah. yeah. We scared him away. For that's the man right. panel edition. We scared that's him away. right. We weren't here for that. Yeah, I had forgotten. By definition. Okay, so all <laughs> you rational security listeners already know mansplainer-in-chief Bill Galston, um, who is an amazing uh, colleague here at Brookings and just published uh, a new book called Anti-Pluralism, The Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy. So Bill is a political theorist, but he's also somebody who over the course of his long career has worked a lot in electoral politics. He's worked in public service in the Clinton White House. He um, And so he knows both from philosophy and theory and from practice the way liberal democracy in this country works. And he's thought a lot about the way it works all around the world. And he really tries to unpack this, uh, the notion of populism and why in what forms is populism damaging to democracy and what forms is it not? And he hones in on the idea of anti-pluralism, that what keeps democracy functional and alive is that we have a diversity of views and they don't get pushed out of the marketplace and that the danger of populism is that it creates a false uh, insistence on uniformity and uh, and conformity and there, thereby kind of destroys the pluralism that's necessary for functioning democracy. It is a wonderfully written book. It is short and snappy and incredibly insightful, and, uh, and I encourage you all to read it. Nice. Ben, you have an object? I have a really quick object. Uh, last year, around this time, the, uh, over the summer, I guess, the FBI released its climate survey data in response to a FOIA request from the New York Times and also a FOIA request from me. Uh, and I have been thinking about, for the past few weeks, how much would the FBI's uh, climate employee survey data change over this past year of 
uh, really dramatic events affecting the FBI leadership. So uh, Scott Anderson, my colleague at Brookings, and I uh, FOIAed it again. And we are uh, interesting, interested to see the FBI. Uh, uh, we understand the climate survey has now been done. And we're interested to see how the results uh, of the FBI's satisfaction with its leadership has changed in the last year. I will confess, when I first heard you say climate, I thought you meant a climate change study. Nope, nope. Cl- it took a second. It, it, it workplace climate. It's we a workplace the FBI climate. And it just the took a second. We, just, right. we put them together. Yeah, because we're, we're, we're going to find out how much confidence <laughs> FBI have. Employees have in Scott Pruitt. You've had red wine in a paper. I was saying, I was, I was saying, like, <laughs> they've been drinking on the why job, they know guys. About this, I don't understand. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and look pretty. Oh well, maybe next week you'll have it. It won't be ready by next week. You won't have. Doubt it it'll be ready by right. next week, but we're ready anytime. Okay, anytime they want to give it to us. We have more red wine. We can sit and drink and talk about in paper cups. Climate change at the FBI on the job. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page. I know you can. You can follow us <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please do leave us a nice rating and review. It really helps people find en the Francais. podcast. En Francais. You can and while you're at it, with four stars buy a Casper mattress, MeUndies, uh, audi- Audible book. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, do it. Do it all. Just, just do it. Out of the buy all of the heart. all the sponsors of all the podcasts, all totally. their products. I'm afraid I'm gonna get tweets by the way telling me I sound like Pepe Le Pew. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a little it's bit. Okay, you you you're so soused at this point, you <laughs> wouldn't mind. <laughs> Our audio engineer is Matthew Kahn. Thanks for the transcontinentals, Matt. The show was produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Ronnie Jackson and the Transcontinentals. Right? All right, yeah. Who else could it be? Come on. Sophia Yan totally would like a Transcontinental, although I think she'd prefer it in a glass. Then it's a Continental. Yeah. (laughs) It's a Continental. As long as it's it's not an Incontinental. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Just in time for the end, we've arrived at poop humor. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Demarco Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. I wish listeners could see how I am Shane Harris. We see you next week. Poo poo on you. Bye bye. (laughs) When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.